0: Invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the Book of Malachi. As a church, the uh, pattern of our teaching on Sunday mornings primarily is uh, exposition—that is, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, through particular books of the Bible. Um, there are many advantages of doing that. I think some of the biggest is that it As we do so, you'll have a model of how it is you should approach Scripture, how it is you should um, read it, interpret it, apply it. And I try to model every week um, just a simple way to how you can take Scripture, chop it up, take it apart, and really study it and meditate upon it. And that's what we want to do. We spent, uh, in the early days of our church, four years going through the book of Matthew, just the, the, the story of Jesus, and it was a great time. After that we did a survey of the Pentateuch for a couple of months and then recently we've been in Colossians the last nine months and then we took a month a <clears throat> month and a half or so to mine some truths from Philemon <clears throat> excuse me and this morning we begin the the book of Malachi in case you're wondering, I think we're going to spend about two months in this book I, I charted some of my messages out this week and I think about seven or eight messages will take us all the way through Malachi. Before we actually get into the book though, I want to give you an introduction which will, trust me, lead into the book. I want to tell you about what happens in the life of many organizations or or movements or institutions. Now, there are lots of phases oftentimes that institutions go through. The first phase is that the institution or movement will fight for the cause. The cause isn't there. They need to bring awareness to it. They fight for it. The second phase that uh, institutions and organizations go through is that they enjoy the cause. The third phase they go through is that they become complacent to the cause. And the last phase they go through is that they... Forget the cause altogether. Let's think about this. The first generation fights for the cause because survival is at stake. If the cause is not proclaimed and believed and taken on and taken hold of, the organization simply won't exist. Nobody will know about the organization. Nobody will know about the cause and the movement will die. The second generation, though, enjoys the cause because there are oftentimes great blessings there to enjoy. Because the first generation has fought the battles, and now the battles are over. And with the hard work now done, it's left for the second generation to enjoy the blessings that come. People have embraced the vision of the movement. There's much support, there's much vision, there's much excitement, there's much unity. And a strange thing oftentimes happens. As things are pretty even keel and things are going pretty well, the next generation is complacent to the cause because the organization has been established, right? The beliefs have been determined. The policies are written down. Procedures are set in place. Everyone knows what to expect and how it is they ought to act. And such a reality can actually bore many people. There's no fight, no cause, no problem to solve. It's all solved. It's all there already. And the last generation... Sometimes forgets the cause. Nothing matters anymore because everything's so normal. The organization's become a machine, all is functioning fine, and long forgotten is the intention of the founding fathers. Their organization carries on just however it wishes. Now, I know that these are broad generalizations, and you can't pigeonhole every organization or movement into these phases. Or generations. And sometimes there's a, a revival that brings them back from the third phase, from complacency to, again, you fight for it a little bit and then they enjoy the blessing. And there's, there's some movements in here, but oftentimes as organizations get older, the chance is great that they have lost the original purpose of what it is that they are doing. I mean, let me give you some examples. I think about our, our nation, the United States of America. If you just think loosely of our founding fathers, um, there's a debate whether Christian or not. They certainly were Deist. They had a view of God. And they had a view of God and they had a view of morality, which was right as well. Uh, I think that uh, the Pledge of Allegiance says as well, one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. And in the early history of our nation, think about the number of people that, that fought for the cause of the United States of America. The Revolutionary War, people lost their lives. Even as recently, World War I, World War II. People lost their lives for our nation. But you know what? In recent years, some things have really happened. We've been blessed more than any other nation that has ever existed. And we've enjoyed the blessings for years. And I think that in some sense, we've drifted into a third generation where we've become complacent for the cause We've begun to focus on our blessings and have missed the cause which brought these blessings about. God has been taken out of the public arena. The morality of of our nation is slipping and sliding faster and faster and faster. The family is corroding. In many ways, we're now at a point where we've forgotten our original cause. I mean, Think about judges. Judges today are reinterpreting the Constitution, not carrying a lick for what the original founding fathers intended. Or think about another movement. In recent days, my wife has had a conversation with somebody who's very involved in the homeschool movement. And she and her husband are working really hard right now at preparing for the Illinois, Home, Illinois Christian Home Educators meeting. And there are the several thousand people will come to this meeting here, I don't know, late May or something like that. And uh, they're part of the planning committee and planning things out. And uh, the homeschool movement started, some people say, back in the late 60s and 70s, where some books were written about the failures of the public schools. And since then, the modern homeschool movement has become more and more popular, gaining strength in recent decades. And the early people who are homeschooling really fought for the cause. There were legal battles that they fought and there were battles of no curriculum was made. So they started making curriculum and churning out all this stuff. And you know, to Their generation today, really many people are enjoying the blessings of homeschooling. I know that many of you families are enjoying the blessings of homeschooling. But in this conversation that Yvonne had with this uh, woman involved in kind of the inner circle of this, she is finding that there is a... There's a, there's a difficulty arising now because now you have kids who've been homeschooling coming and being leaders of the homeschooling group and even teaching of some things. And um, there's a concern that people today are complacent. They've never fought the legal battles for the freedom to educate their children at home. As far as they're concerned, laws have always been on the books that they can educate their children at home. They've never struggled with the difficulties of thinking through a curriculum as far as they're concerned, getting a curriculum is as easy as placing an order online. For others, you know, they, they these have become complacent because they've never lacked a support group. As far as they're concerned, there have always been dozens of families surrounding them, always, who've been homeschooling. And so people are concerned that it's a moving into the complacency era. The thing about churches, churches go the same way. You know, there's a reason why liberal churches don't plant churches. Do you know that? I mean, when was the last time you ever heard of a, a Methodist church plant? Or a Congregationalist church plant? They don't plant churches. Now, certainly there's probably some exceptions. You can probably find some place. But who plants churches? But people who are Bible believers who believe they have a cause to fight for. In life a church, you can fight for the church. And then once it's established, what happens? People enjoy the blessings of the church. The teaching is good. The worship is good. The program's meeting real needs. People are growing. But sadly, oftentimes in the life of churches, is they shift to that third phase. And people become complacent. The status quo becomes what people are content with. No longer is the attitude, what can I give to serve this ministry? Rather, the attitude is, what can the church do for me? I was meeting with Steve Leston this week, pastor at Kishwaukee Bible Church. And he told... The story about when he was a youth pastor, there was a family that came to him that said, Oh, we're coming to your church now. We've known of your church for years, but we didn't like your Sunday school curriculum. We like the Sunday school curriculum at this church, so they went to that church. But now that our kids are older, we like your youth group, so now we're coming to your youth group. And the perspective is, what can I get out of the church rather than how can I serve and give to the church? And that's a perspective of complacency. And then from complacency goes to apathy or forgetting about the church. Foundations of the church no longer become important. Foundations are forgotten. The church becomes outward form with little purposes. And churches become liberal. Church history bears that out. That's happened time after time after time again. In fact, one man I know of said tongue-in-cheek that conservative churches shouldn't build buildings because the liberals are going to take over anyway. Building buildings for liberals to take over that's putting forth the same idea is that churches are drifting and they're, they're getting to a place where you know, everything they started from left and that's by the way, why there's always need for new churches to be started because churches are always drifting. Now I say that by way of introduction, to the book of Malachi because people in the days of Malachi were on this trajectory to the final stage of forgetting the Lord. They had fought for the truth. And I'm going to show you how they'd fought for the truth. They had enjoyed the blessings of God. I'm going to show you how they enjoyed the blessings. They became complacent with God. And I'll show you that. And eventually they are reaching the point in Malachi where they've forgotten God. My message this morning is entitled, Do Not Forget the Lord, because that is what Malachi teaches us. Let's begin this morning by looking at verse 1. I didn't intend to get through verse 5, but verse 1 is is important to look through for the purposes of introduction. simply says this, "...the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi." <clears throat> the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Third time's a charm, right? The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I just want to pick different things from this passage. My outline's simple. The recipients, the writer... The message and the application. You want to write those down? You write those right down in your notes. The recipients, the writer, the message, the application. First we see the, the recipients. Verse 1 simply says this, To Israel. Now, the history of Israel was a long one. It began by the calling of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans around 2000 B.C. The whole Old Testament that we have is devoted to telling the story, really, of God's dealings with the Israelites and the Israelites and their dealings with God. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into all the depths of all the ups and downs of history, though next, next week, really, we will, because we'll see the faithful, loving kindness of the Lord next week. <clears throat> but we need to pick up on the recent history of what took place <clears throat> in the days of Malachi. I want to give you four facts about their history. Fact number one, they'd fought for the Lord. They fought for the Lord. The people of Israel had been exiles in the land of Babylon for 70 years. Longing to get back in the land. They were sorrowful that they were in Babylon. They wanted to come back. And miraculously, by the hand of God, Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a decree in 538 B.C. And he proclaimed, Whoever there is among you of all his people... May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Here was a a Persian governor saying, All of you exiles who want to go back and rebuild the temple, whoever wants to go, go back, and I will even fund some of it. And so 30,000 people went back into the land, lived in Jerusalem with the task of living there and rebuilding the temple. But the enemies of Judah and Benjamin rose up, and they stopped the work. And there was opposition to the work. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 4 and chapter 5. And, And they said, you can't build this. They said, yes, we can. And they went back to get the decree from Cyrus, and it comes back, and they built and And for 21 years, they fought for the Lord in trying to build the temple. Finally, the temple was completed. And on that day, you can imagine, after 21 years of fighting, The sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the temple of God with great joy. Ezra 6.16 And soon after they got the temple built up, they realized they didn't have enough uh, Levites. And so Ezra went back to Babylon and said, Hey, who are more Levites who can come and perform all the priestly duties of everything? And it was a time of great excitement because the first generation had fought for for the Lord. At this point, the people of Israel began a season to enjoy the Lord. It's a second, second fact about Israel. A man named Ezra, Ezra 7, verse 10, he'd set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach its statutes to all Israel. He came to Jerusalem to teach. And in fact, this is amazing, he was under the mandate of King Artaxerxes to make sure that the law would be taught in Jerusalem. Listen to Ezra 7. You, Ezra, this is a pagan king, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges, that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who's ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of, the, of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. They had divine authority to, to press the teaching. If people didn't obey, they had the authority of the king to say, you know what, why don't you guys just leave Jerusalem because we are a theocracy here. And Israel enjoyed the great blessings of God. I think one of the most moving chapters in all the Bible is found in Nehemiah chapter 8. When, when all the people gathered together at the one square at the fish gate, At the water gate rather. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. And they they constructed this wooden platform so he could stand high above all the people. And then Ezra, it says in Nehemiah 8, 2 and 3, from early morning until midday, he read from the law and all the people were attentive to the law. It was just, the temple had been built, Ezra had come back, we're going to teach. And they taught an all day seminar reading from the law. And it says, even as the law was read, it was explained so they understood the reading. They were enjoying the Lord, enjoying the truth. Soon afterwards, though, a third fact came along. Can you guess what it is? They became complacent with the Lord. They began to be involved in great sin, not caring about all that Ezra and his disciples had taught taught them. The sin began with the priests and then continued down through the people. The priests neglected their duties. In fact, you can read in Nehemiah 13 of the fact that the priests rented out a room for Tobiah to live in the courts of the temple. So, they're doing a favor of this guy and so he gets to live in the church building and thus even defiling the place. The priests allowed people to offer up lame and sick sacrifices contrary to the law. The people had failed to give their tithes to the Lord. The people of Israel had begun to intermarry foreign women. It was kind of complacent about the Lord. It was all said and done. The fourth fact about them is that they'd forgotten the Lord. They had Ezra and his disciples, their teachers. At this point, it is the last book in our Old Testament. They had all the previous revelation. They could read in Genesis, they could read in Leviticus, they could read the Psalms, they could read the Proverbs, they could read Isaiah, they could read Jeremiah, they could read Hosea, and they'd forgotten them. They'd not become attention paid attention to any of it. And that's the book in the context of it's the context of the book of Malachi, though this generation of people, and, and actually it, it happened over a span of about a hundred years, maybe we're guessing. They came into the land fighting for the truth and then enjoying the Lord. They became complacent to the Lord and forgot the Lord. And this is the book of Malachi. And so at this point, really what I want to do is is, uh, survey for you the book of Malachi by showing the different ways in which Israel had forgotten the Lord. And throughout the book, God makes his perspective known and then Israel responds by saying, How's that true? Because they, they'd miss the Lord. You know, it's it's a little bit like this game we sometimes play in our family. Maybe you guys know it. It's called, Who Stole the Cookies from the Cookie Jar? Any of you guys ever play this game? It goes like this. Who stole the cookies from the cookie jar? And you, say, you just say something like this. Carissa. Carissa stole the cookies from the cookie jar. Well, me? Yes, you. <laughs> then who? And it'd go on and on. And he'd just bounce around. And the idea there's, Who, me? No, it couldn't be me. Well, that's exactly what Israel says in these questions that God answers them. And these, these, these questions come again and again. In fact, there are seven of them. Two of them are real close together. And if you write in your Bibles, like I would really encourage you to, is, is, is write in them, write a big box around the questions that Israel asks. Because these questions... Form the structure of the book of Malachi and they will guide and determine my next messages over the following weeks as we look at each of them. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Malachi says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. There's the statement, I've loved you, Israel. And Israel says, Couldn't be. How have you loved us? These people were ignorant of the love of God. Though God had blessed them in many ways to protect them in exile, though God had, in the context here, shown His love by fighting against their enemies, they questioned His love for them. They had forgotten the truth of Jeremiah 31, verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. They'd forgotten. Well, the next who, me... Comes in uh, verse six. Look at there. God says this: A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a master, if I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, then where is my respect? Says the Lord of Hosts, O priests who despise my name. But you say, Who us? How have we despised your name? God says you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say. How have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. You see, just their ignorance. They had forgotten the Lord. They were ignorant of the most basic fundamentals regarding the worship of the Lord. He is to be honored. That's what verse 6 says. They failed in honoring him. Instead, they despised him. Verse 6. They defiled him. Verse 7. They had forgotten the truth of Deuteronomy six: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind." And they had forgotten that. They thought God was just—you could love Him a little bit, not really give Him all. But that's dishonoring to the Lord. Well, the second, the third question—actually, it's the fourth question. But really, it's a third group of question comes in verse. Chapter 2 verse 14. It's another, who, me? And God says, yes, you. Beginning of verse 13 to catch the context. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? How is that the case? We don't know. Can't be. Because the Lord has been a witness against you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. These people were ignorant of the effects of their sin and worship. They thought that they could, could worship God with great emotion, pouring out their tears with loud shrieks of groaning. But God wasn't accepting their worship because they'd been unfaithful in their marriages. They dealt treacherously with the wife of their youth. You can't pay, play fast and loose with sin and expect to worship God. They've forgotten the truth of Deuteronomy 7 which said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites. The Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger you. When the Lord your God delivers them from before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them and you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, here it is, Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will quickly destroy you. They were controlled by their lusts, marrying foreign women. And God wouldn't accept their worship, no matter how emotional it was. Well, the next question revolves around the same theme. It's at the end of chapter 2, verse 17. God says, you've wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, how have we wearied Him? Who, us? We haven't wearied Him. How have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? These people were ignorant of the effects of their poor theology. They supposed it didn't matter how you live. they could live. They they believe you could live good or evil, and the Lord would still look favorably upon you. They didn't see the righteousness of God as having any effect upon their their worship, upon their lives, or upon their prayers. And they had forgotten the truth of Isaiah. Chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. God says, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. It just wasn't good. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. Listen, they're doing things in some sense in the outward just right. But He says, You've become a a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You can't come with iniquity and wrong theology and trust that God's going to delight in that. Well, the next question they ask of God comes in chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, we're not robbing you. How have we robbed you? God says, in tithes and offerings. These people were ignorant of the requirement that God placed upon the people of Israel to pay their tithes, to support the work done in the temple. These tithes were a bit like our taxes today. They were mandated upon the people of God. It was integrated into the framework of the society to support the temple. But rather than supporting the temple with their tithes, they became thieves instead, withholding from God what was due Him and robbing God. They'd forgotten the truth of Numbers 18, verse 21. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service in the tent of meeting. They weren't supporting the Levites as they were mandated from God. And God alerted them of that and said, This is not good. Well, the last indictment comes in chapter three, verse thirteen. It says, Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, Who us? What have we spoken against you? These people were ignorant in the ways of God. They thought that their service to the Lord was in vain. You can see that there in verse 14. They thought it was useless to serve the Lord because others who denied Him were walking securely. They said, what use is it to follow the Lord then? And they'd forgotten that glorious psalm, Psalm 73, where Asaph had the same trouble. He saw the prosperity of the wicked and thought that he had kept his heart pure in vain. What did Asaph do, you remember? He perceived their end and he saw that the Lord places them in slippery places and he cast them down to destruction. They'd forgotten that. They'd departed from the Lord. Well, that's the book of Malachi. It's a book written to a people who had known great blessings of God but had forgotten His ways and thus incurred the judgment of God. Well, that's the recipients of the book. A disobedient people who had forgotten the Lord. Let's look now at the author. It says back in chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, some have pronounced this name Malachi and called him the great Italian prophet. But that's not how you pronounce his name. It's Malachi. Okay, comes from two Hebrew words. Really, Malach is the one, which means messenger, and the, the yod, the I at the end, is a personal pronoun, my. It's my messenger. Now this name, Malachi, my messenger, is the only time it appears in the Bible, is just right here. It's a, it's a proper name. We don't know anything else about Malachi other than what we know right here. But we do know that he was a messenger, malach, a you know, common word for messenger. It's a messenger of God. It's a messenger of disaster in the case of Job. Remember when the messenger came after his family had been destroyed? These were messengers. These were molochs that came. The time of war, right? The messenger came to the king to report from the war front how the war was doing to King David. Sometimes these messengers translate angels, which would be like heavenly messengers who come and bring some kind of heavenly message and thus the translation, My messengers. It's good. Even you see, if you have a New American stand on your footnote there, it even says Malachi or my messenger. Now that word shows in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. I'm going to send Malachi. Right? But it's a kind of a play on his words. I'm sending you Elijah, right? John the Baptist is who is sending to clear the way before the Lord. That's all we know of Malachi. He was a messenger of God to speak His message to the people. And fundamentally, that's a a real appropriate name for the one who wrote this book because fundamentally this book is a book of personal message of God to Israel. And I'll show you that by this. There are 55 verses in this book. It's a pretty small book. You know, you can read it in about 12 minutes out loud. It's pretty easy, 55 verses. And yet more than half of these verses are written in the first person well more than half of these verses are written in the first person i counted up all the personal pronouns every time it says me i or mine 69 times in 55 verses 37 times says i 27 times says my 12 times he says me this is god speaking directly to israel through malachi my messenger right i want to give you a flavor of this you know, in every chapter it comes. So I'm just going to read some verses. I want you to be listening for the personal pronouns. you ready? Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Right? God is doing that. Or Chapter 2. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already, but you are not taking it to heart. Therefore, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, and the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you'll know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him as an object of reference, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. You getting the flavor here? It is God speaking first person to the people of Israel. Chapter 3, 10 and 11. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of Hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord God, says the Lord of Hosts. Chapter 4 continues this first person idea, verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. It's a personal message. It is the word of God. I mean, think about that. If God was going to give you a personal message, would you take heed to that message? And this is as personal as God gets. So many personal pronouns in here. And in fact, through here, maybe you've heard a phrase of what it is. It says the Lord, chapter 1 verse 2. Declares the Lord, chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, chapter 1 verse 4. Says the Lord of hosts, chapter 1 verse 6. Says the Lord of hosts, chapter 1 verse 9. Says the Lord of hosts, chapter 1 verse 10. Says the Lord of hosts, chapter 1 verse 11. The Lord of hosts. He is powerful. He is the sovereign one. He is the authority. He's the Lord over all the angelic spiritual realm. If you had a message, a personal message from George W. Bush, would you listen to it? I think you would. It's a personal message from the Lord through Malachi to Israel. That's exactly what chapter 1, verse 1 says. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. We've seen the recipients, Israel. We've seen the author, Malachi. Now let's look at the message. I think you've probably detected this a little bit from the words I've said. The message this morning, the message in Malachi is heavy. It is heavy. I remember in the days of my generation... That word being used sometimes, someone would say some profound truth or something that was hard and difficult, and maybe you can relate. Says, "Man, that was heavy, dude." Right? You know what I'm talking about? And I would guess in the uh, the culture of today, that's probably the same, right? That's heavy, man. Right? That's just it's just weighty. That's a that's a weighty truth, and you know what? That's exactly what Malachi is. Look there; it says it's the oracle. Again, in the New American Standard, there's a good footnote there. It says, literally, the burden. And you all know what a burden is. The burden is something heavy that comes upon your shoulders. It's Atlas lifting up the world. It is a burden. And Malachi had this burden upon him that he needed to take and put on the people of God. It was his burden It was weighing upon him. In fact, the New King James translates it right. It's called the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. And as he wrote this message down, as he preached this message to Israel, the burden got off his back. Now, it's interesting when you see this word oracle, burden being used throughout the Old Testament. It's used many times. Um, Isaiah used it almost a dozen times. He had a burden concerning Babylon, had a burden concerning Moab, had a burden concerning Damascus, had a burden concerning Edom, had a burden concerning Arabia, had a burden concerning Tyre. And all of them, as you read through Isaiah, their message of condemnation, it's condemnation, it's condemnation, it's condemnation, it's condemnation. That's what an oracle is. Jeremiah had a burden to bring. It was a message, Jeremiah twenty-three, of punishment. It was a message of abandonment. Right? Judgment coming upon the people. God says, I am abandoning you. That's the oracle. Nahum had a burden to bring against Nineveh. It was a message of coming judgment. Habakkuk had a burden to bring. The people of Judah—it was coming destruction, and Malachi is no different. It's a message of judgment from the Lord. And you need to say, say, "Okay, why is this judgment coming?" Well, because the recipients of this letter were a wayward people in need of serious correction, and Malachi is coming, bringing that correction. God Himself evaluated the people of Israel; it wasn't good. They'd forgotten the Lord, and so He's going to bring the only message that's appropriate. Judgment was coming. Well, before you start getting downcast to think, oh man, there's going to be two months of judgment. This is going to be bad. Well, let me, let me encourage you by a little bit because there's there's hope in Malachi. I always want to preach with hope. <laughs> I always want to preach with hope. And there is hope. If you look at the end of chapter 3, verse 16, there is hope to people. It says, Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. There was a remnant here in Israel. These people who feared the Lord. And the Lord gave attention. In the midst of judgment, He He gave attention and saw these people who feared the Lord. And He heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before Him. For those who fear the Lord and who esteem, esteem His name. People had forgotten the Lord. But those who feared the Lord, God remembered them. That's this book of remembrance. There is hope there. There's hope for those who fear the Lord. Chapter 4 contains hope. Look at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves in the stall. So it's not all doom and gloom. Yes, it is a message of judgment, but... For those who fear the Lord and walk in His name, they can anticipate great blessings to come. And see, God always blesses those who fear His name. Those who see God for who He is. His, his majestic, transcendent, awesome, holy Creator. Right? When we see God as that, the only response is to fear the Lord. Right? Those who don't fear the Lord, right? the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fear of the Lord is not in his heart, but those who know there's a God and understand His awesome character will fear the Lord. will will bow the knee in repentance and faith and trust to Him. Right, those who fear the Lord will see their sin, and will see that even as uh, the song said today, Lord, um, my strength indeed is small. And God says, child of weakness, watch and pray and find in Me your all in all. That is who we are. We are weak before a sovereign a holy God, we are sinful and we need forgiveness and we find that forgiveness in Christ and there is great hope and God remembers us and God restores us. So there is hope in this passage. The hope is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And even if you're living in the midst of of pagan people who have forgotten the Lord and who are going after idols and who have forsaken their marriages and who are offering up lame sacrifices and who are doubting the goodness and justice of God and who are defiling Him and profaning Him, even if you're surrounded by people like that, like righteous Lot, you can fear the Lord, call upon His name and be saved and protected. So even when this judgment comes, there is there's hope. Well, we've seen the recipients, the author, the message. Now let's look at the application. I think we need to work a little bit upon this because the application to us doesn't come direct. Okay, you need to understand that, that. We are not like Israel today. At least I hope not. We've not forgotten the truth. We've not abandoned God. Uh, I don't believe, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, that we have forgotten the love of God like the people of Israel did. Chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9, I don't think that we've forgotten how to honor the Lord with our worship. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, I don't think that we've forgotten the importance of righteousness in our worship. Chapter 2, 17 through 3, 7, I don't think that we've denied the justice of God. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, I don't think that we have robbed the Lord in our giving. Chapter 3, 13-15, I don't believe we've spoken against the Lord like these people did. It's vain to serve God. We would say, you oh, it is worth it to fear God. First Timothy says, Godliness is profitable for all things. But you know what? There may be some tendencies of each of us toward this way. There may be a tendency for us <clears throat> as a church to drift there. And these will be good reminders of us, of the judgment that will come upon us if we get there. And you know what? It may be the case that some of you are there. And if you're there, you need to take heed. But for those of you who aren't there, here's the application. We need to learn by way of warning. This book pictures the tragic results of a disobedient group of people. And we need to learn that that can be us if we continue in those ways. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Look at their end and realize that's not the path you want to be going down because that's the end. I remember when I was in high school <clears throat> seeing these commercials on television where they held an egg. Maybe you remember these commercials. And they said, This is your mind. And they had a tss, frying pan. And what they say, This is drugs. And then they broke the egg and put it in there. And then what they say, This is your mind on, your mind on drugs, fried. <laughs> I remember in high school. I forget whether this is a driver's ad or some publicity campaign. Seeing pictures of cars just totally mauled and wrecked. A totally undrivable. driver probably killed. And I was told this car was wrecked in a teenage drunk driver. The implication is clear. Don't go down that path. Don't drink and drive. <clears throat> That's the path. That's the end. Don't drive down that path because that's where it is. Now, those advertisements are called scare tactics. But you know what? Scare tactics, they're biblical. Malachi should be a scare tactic to us. But think about the book of Proverbs. Solomon says, I passed by the field of the sluggard, the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. And then he said, I looked upon it and I... I reflected upon it, and I received instruction. He said, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and then poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. You can teach your children by looking at homeless people and say, that can be the end of you if you don't work hard. Laziness may well lead to poverty. So work hard so you don't have a barren field, but rather a fruitful crop so you can provide for yourselves, right? That's arguing from the end. That's the end. Be warned today so you don't go down that path. Solomon, again in Proverbs 7, talked about the time he was looking out of the window and noticed a young man lacking sense down there. He saw this woman coming by who was boisterous and rebellious. And she told the naive young man, Now, certainly there's some fiction to this because he can't hear what she's saying, but he knows. He's imagining this. And and here it is. This this, uh, adulterous, boisterous woman says, Come, let us drink our love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon he'll come home. And with her many persuasions, she entices him. With flattering lips she seduces him. And then... Solomon says, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Until the arrow pierces through his liver and a bird hastens to the snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And what's Solomon saying? He's saying, Look at the end. It's going to cost you your life. There are women out there on the prowl who attract with their beauty. Use their smooth tongue. Fish with their eyelids. And if you are seduced by our ways, you're like an ox led to slaughter. You won't escape from that. Don't go down that path. You want to destroy yourself? Go down that path. Follow the adulterous woman. But don't do it. Don't do it. He's arguing from the end, arguing from the result. Don't go down that path. Other passages of Scripture speak about the way? Psalm 1. How blessed is a man, right? He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the skeet of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its good seasons. Leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff, which the wind blows away. So what do you want to do? You want to be like the wicked? You want to be blown away? Or you want to stand like a tree? Just be wicked and you'll be blown away. But stand like a tree on the Word of God, loving the law of the Lord. Think about your end and take the path to that end. Jesus argued the same way. Matthew 25. He described the great final culmination of history. He grabs two people to Himself. Groups of two people. Some are sheep and some are goats. The goats, I believe, they're on the left. They did not live righteously. And so what did Jesus do? He cast them away into outer darkness, eternal destruction. But the sheep, they're brought to eternal life. The one to eternal fire, the one to eternal life. Which path do you want to go down? Go down the path of eternal life. It's a path of righteousness, right? Caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for the blind, the homeless, the needy. That. I'm so glad we had a good representation of us, the church, at the Crisis Pregnancy Center Banquet last night. And uh, that is caring for the, for the orphan. It's caring for the, the needy, the helpless. And we need to be about that as a church. We need to be about that. Because that's the path the sheep are on. The goats were on the path. They didn't do those things. They didn't visit the prisoner. They didn't give the clothes. They didn't give the drink. They didn't give the food. So think about the end, where you want to be, and walk on the path to that way. And if the end is bad, don't walk the path that direction. And that's where Malachi directs us this morning. And I simply say this, that all of you, listen, collectively we're at a state of the church, but all of you are at different spots along the way, certainly. If today finds you fighting for the truth, boy, keep fighting. Keep fighting and keep pressing on, right? As Paul said, right, at the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's looking towards the end, the reward, and He's fighting the fight to get there. So if you're fighting, boy, fight hard. If you're enjoying the truth, enjoy it to the max. Realize the great blessings of God that come from the Scriptures, that come from living a righteous life. May you see your children, children. May they believe. May they prosper. May they rise up and call you blessed. Enjoy the truth. But never forget the fight that it took to get to enjoy the truth. If today finds you becoming complacent about the truth, well, be warned because you're starting down a path towards destruction. You're starting down the path that Israel went in the days of, of Malachi. And the warnings of Malachi are especially for you. Oh, you may not get to the point where you have forgotten the Lord. But you might be at the point where, oh, the Lord, eh, whatever. I don't know. Am I going to read my Bible today? I don't know. Am I gonna? How am I going to live today? Well, I might do this. I might do that. Don't be complacent. If you're complacent, you're on that path. And if today finds you forgetting the truth, this is directly towards you and you need to remember the words of Malachi that they are heavy words. If that's you today, I simply call you. Just cry out to God. Fear Him. Plead the merits of Jesus Christ. It's your only hope. Well, I'm looking forward to going through this book. And it will teach us much and it will remind us of the things that we ought not to forget. As we see in in future weeks, we'll see we can't forget His love. Never forget the love of God. We can't forget His honor. Let us never forget the honor of God. We can't forget His righteousness. So never forget His righteousness, God. Don't forget His justice. Don't forget His blessing. Don't Forget His grace. And you know what? If we don't forget, God will remember us. Chapter 3, verse 16, the book of remembrance. So don't forget the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are a a people that forget. Jesus even told us to institute the Lord's Supper because of our tendency to forget. And so, Lord, I, I would pray that that you would cause us always to remember Christ. That you would remember you cause us to remember the power of the cross. You would cause us to remember that we are weak and there's nothing in our hands we bring. We simply to the cross we cling. That's the only source of our of our power. May we remember your love and your honor and your righteousness and your justice and your grace, and your worthiness. Lord, that you would keep us from those phases. Lord, keep us fighting for the truth. Keep us enjoying the truth. May we never be complacent with the truth. And may we never forget the truth. May we always remember Christ and Him crucified. That's the only truth upon which we stand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.